1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The focus of our sermon this morning will be to finish those uh, three commands or injunctions that Paul gives us in verse 16 through 18. If you would stand with me, let's pray and ask God's blessing on us, and then we'll read verse 16 through 18. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ to be built up and encouraged in Your Word. We come to grow in grace. We come, Lord, to have knowledge given to us, to have our, have our minds straightened out, Lord, uh, cleaned up. Lord, root out in us anything that is not Your will. Root out in our hearts anything that is, Lord, causing us to stumble our, Lord, interrupting our growth in grace. Lord, feed our hearts and our minds righteousness and justice and truth in Christ. And let the fruit, Lord, of this sermon this morning be understanding. Let it be, O Lord, a desire to walk in your commandments and laws and principles and statutes. Lord, let it be a joy in the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Praise and glory to your name. Lord, let us, Lord, who hear your word this morning, be glad in Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, verse 16, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. When we, be, when we started chapter 5, we were impressed with the instruction of the Apostle Paul in the direction he was leading this congregation, the wisdom and the pastoral heart that Paul uh, exhibited in helping them develop their ongoing character in order for the church to remain vibrant and strong. Paul, in closing out this letter gives them these instructions so that they might continue walking in a manner worthy of God. Now, that's the point. If you look over there at, at chapter 2 and verse 12, this is what Paul has already stated. His purpose. And look in verse 10 through 12. He says, You are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. These are not just... Simple statements that Paul is using to close out the letter to make it longer or anything like that whatsoever. These are very important injunctions and commandments that Paul gives to us so that if, like the church in Thessalonica, to remain vibrant and to remain growing in grace and to remain ever increasing in these graces, never, never completing them, but growing in them. We must follow the same injunctions and commandments. We must 
Heed the counsel of the Apostle Paul, the counsel he has given to this church, we too must take to heart. He's already dealt with in verse 12 and following how we must address and live with one another in the church. And now you might consider these injunctions of rejoice, pray, and give thanks Our relationship to God. Paul addresses our relationship with each other. And now Paul addresses our relationship to God. Which is very important. Which is very important. This morning I do plan to finish these verses. These three graces correspond well not only to one another. As I will demonstrate later but also to the other graces given in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, notice what Paul, how Paul commends them for three other saving graces. Notice what he says in verse 3. Um, that, he, that we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as, as is only fitting because of your faith. Okay, because of your faith is greatly enlarged and the love that you have for one another. Paul is talking about this, this love. Or I'm sorry, I was reading the other First uh, Thessalonians 2. What he says in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor and love and your steadfastness of hope. These are three saving graces that the Holy Spirit works in us in order to save us and to keep us saved. Not only does the Spirit work in us faith, faith that we exercise, we exercise a belief in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit works that faith in us. It's our faith. But He also works in us a divine love because God loved us. Now we can now love Him And love one another. The Spirit of God is working in us love. Faith, love, and hope. These graces, rejoice, prayer, and thanksgiving are related to those. You might say it this way or you might see and understand it this way. Out of these saving graces spring forth rejoicing. These saving graces bring forth the outward and open fruit of rejoicing. You see, rejoice, prayer, and thankfulness are all related to things that we are to do. To do. We are to rejoice. We are to praise God. You might see it this way. Rejoice pertains primarily to God's communion with us. Now, why did I not say our communion with God first? Because He's the initiator. He initiates that communion. You see, beloved, and one thing that is clear in Scripture is there's nothing about us that would cause God to naturally love us. God doesn't look at any of His creatures and go, wow, what talent. What character. I would like to get to know that person. We do that, don't we? We see someone who excels 
Maybe in our work. Or maybe in character. Or maybe in lifestyle. And we go, I'd like to really get to know that person. God does not do any of that towards us. The Bible is clear that He has placed His love upon us completely because He chose to do it. And that's the only reason. He pleased Him to do it because He wanted to do it. Rejoicing pertains primarily to God's communion with us, beloved. If you can grasp that, if you can understand that, when you begin surveying the Old Testament and going through all of those passages and historical narratives and those Psalms and and any of the other history of the Old Testament, what do you find God's people doing? They are rejoicing that God is their God. He is our God. Secondly, prayer. Prayer pertains to the outward, if you will, call upon God for provision, right? It's outward. Just like rejoicing is something we do outwardly. You can't be hidden. Prayer is something we do outwardly. It's not Hidden. It's something that we do. It's an act by which we humble ourselves and admit our dependence upon Him. We are to pray for God's provisions for us. Think about Psalm 23. Think about how the psalmist recites God's goodness and provisions. And then you get it. You sort of get the picture of it. It's this outward manifestation, an outward declaration. It's this this outward work that God is being called upon because He lacks nothing and we need everything. Now, third injunction and commandment this morning is going to be thanksgiving. Give thanks. Give thanks. And it's related to God's mercy. God's mercy. Our thanksgiving is outward. It's to be displayed. It's to be recognized. And it's related to God's mercy. God's care for us. God's goodness toward us. These are all related to one another. In fact, I want you to think about these graces like a family. They're meant to stay together. This means, beloved, and what we will see as we look up several passages of Scripture, that where you see one of these graces, you're going to find other graces. And and that's a key point that I want you to remember this morning. Either remember it, write it on the back of your eyelids, or jot it down if you're taking notes. That is, how do I know I'm biblically rejoicing? How do I know my heart is rent to rejoice in the honor and the glory of God? How do I know that my prayer is earnest and it's, it, it, it comes from a dependent will? Lord, I am dependent for everything from your hand. How do we know that we are offering the giving of thanks biblically and according to the, the Holy Spirit's direction. Well, we're going to need to look for these other graces. 
You see, we may, we may pray and completely get up from that prayer or walk away from that prayer or walk away from worship and never ever think about our need of His provisions anymore. Ever. We, we, we may walk away from it and go, something we just went through. And it didn't cause you to rejoice. It didn't cause a deep sense of thanksgiving in your heart. That is noticeable. So where you see one of these graces in Scripture, you always find the other two graces accompanying them. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, I can stop there. Notice how prayers and thanksgiving is coupled together. You're going to find that in dozens and dozens of places of the Scriptures where whether it be the Old Testament prophets or whether it be the New Testament apostles, there's always a coupling of these graces and that's important so that we look for them in our own lives. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Let me read verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open a door to us for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which we have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, Paul says, do what? Paul says, pray. But in your praying, exhibit thanksgiving. In your prayer, exhibit another grace, that of giving thanks. It's not just the petitioning or asking God of something. It's knowing and believing that God is good and He is a merciful God. And God has the desire and the will to want to answer our petitions. You know, we talk a lot about the power of God. But what we're talking about right now is God exercising that power and authority to carrying out His desire to what? Answer prayers. Answer prayers. He wants to answer your prayers. He wants to do this. He desires to do this. I mean, what more could He say? What better commandment than He could give through Jesus by saying... Ask whatever you will in my name, it'll be given to you. What, what an encouragement to pray. Can you think of a better one? Can you think of a, any, how clearer could you be for Jesus to say, listen, go to your father, ask 
of him anything in my name, which means asking according to his will, and he's going to do it for you. I mean, think about you children. Your parents come to you and say, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Really? Anything I want? Yeah, anything according to what is good. I'm going to give it to you. I mean, that's what the Lord is doing in Christ. He is saying, come and ask of your heavenly Father in my name and it will be done for you. That's a great encouragement to pray, I think. And it's a great encouragement to offer thanksgiving. Look at Psalm 92. Psalm 92. For it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Now stop there. Then go down to verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. Notice again what we have, the coupling of these praises, this joy and thanks in the giving of thanks. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm telling you this morning. And I'm not saying be thankful. I'm not saying be thankful. That's assumed. What Paul is commanding is give thanks. There's a difference. He's not saying have a thankful heart. You know, and I think there's something to this, right? Because we can, we can, you know, kind of walk around in our own little environment and, you know, uh, people perceive us in one way and then say what? Well, I am thankful. Believe me. Don't you worry about it. I'm thankful. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying, listen, just be thankful. He is saying it is God's will for you in Christ to express thanksgiving. Are we doing that? Do we do that? If we do that, how do we do that? Do we do it well? Do we do it in a manner that's pleasing to God? Let me give you just a simple definition of what it is to be thankful and what we're talking about here. What is it to express thanksgiving? It is to verbally express gratitude for God's unmerited favor. It, let me read it again. It is to verbally express gratitude for God's unmerited favor. And that's the important part. Unmerited favor. Brothers and sisters... All who are in Christ Jesus have favor. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you realize the rich blessings and the the, the heavenly treasure you have in Christ and how you're favored by the Father? Turn back to Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me show you this. Let's read verse 3 through 4. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, 
Beloved by God, His choice for you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What does is, what is Paul say here? What's Paul, what did Paul mean by these verses? What he says is, oh, beloved, you've been elected by God. All of this, this faith, this hope and love that you are exhibiting, this embracing of the gospel that we preach to you, this eagerness that you have exhibited for more knowledge and understanding and for sanctification and walking with Jesus Christ. Where did it come from? Where does it stem from? What's, what birthed this wonderful salvation in your life and in the life of your other uh, brothers and sisters in the church. Where did it come from? It came, brothers and sisters, from God's eternal election. It came because He had favor on you and upon me and upon countless millions of others who believe upon Him. That's what thankfulness is. It's the verbal expression of a heart that's been touched by God's hand in salvation in Christ. Brothers and sisters, when's the last time your tongue truly expressed a thanksgiving that was worthy of God? Was it this morning? Before coming to church? Was it when you got up this morning knowing that the day is it's different? Brothers and sisters, there's a day. Let me, let me help you understand how important these duties are. Not only are we called upon to exercise these duties in our persons, right? I mean, it's in, in who we are. We are... We ought to be people who rejoice. We ought to be people who pray. We ought to be people who, are, who, who give thanks. But the Lord has appointed certain days for you to do it. I want you to think about that. The Lord's day is a day that God has set apart and appointed for you to come and to declare your joy. For you to come and to declare your need for Him in petitions and praying. And, and that you would give thanks to Him for His mercies that He has favored you with. Can you? What a, what a God! What a God to appoint a day to remind us what our role and what our duties are in Christ. What happens when we fail to do such basic gospel obedience? What happens, brothers and sisters, when we become so numb or hardened in our hearts that it's hard to rejoice, to express our joy for our communion with God. What happens when we can't barely muster up a desire to pray and to exhibit our need for His provisions? 
What happens when we can barely muster up a desire to give thanks? Well, this day is to remind us that in Christ we not only should do those things, but we have reasons to do those things. And they are good reasons. They're not, they are not, they are good and solid and biblical reasons for us to gather together and express our joy, offer up our prayers, and to give thanksgiving to God. Amen. It's what the Paul is teaching us here. And I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that these graces, these marks, if you will, just as they flow out of faith, hope, and love, they stream from there. I mean, if you, if you are joyless, prayerless, and thankless, I dare say you've never exhibited biblical faith. You don't have biblical love. And you certainly have no hope. Or at least it shouldn't be a biblical hope. It may be a hope built on, you know, false pretenses. But faith, hope, and love are the source. They are the fountainhead, if you will. As God's electing favor is bestowed upon us in Christ, as Christ puts His Spirit in us and the Spirit works in these graces into our lives, joy, prayer, and Giving of thanks is going to be a part of our lives. But like all other graces, we have to exercise them, don't we? Like all these other graces, what happens when we don't exercise these graces? We become weak. We become a hindrance, not only to ourselves, but we become a hindrance to the body. Let's just be honest with ourselves we would prefer to be in fellowship with those who are encouraging us not those who are causing us to stumble right amen if i'm watching my brothers and sisters rejoice and they go through the hardest difficulties praying petitioning god to hold on to them and for all that they need to continue to walking in this grace of joy, and that they express thanksgiving, I think about, I think, I think any number of Christians who have gone through great difficulty, and yet they say, "Praise God!" I wouldn't take anything else for it because of what I've learned and what God is doing in my life. It's kind of like, and I don't want to just be nostalgic about the 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 past of the South, but I do, and I am impressed with. The Christianity of Stonewall Jackson. I am impressed of his faith. I am impressed with his character. And I've been very impressed when his friends were lamenting the loss of his arm. And he looked at his friends and said, If God doesn't want me to have it, I don't want it. I'm impressed by that. And I hope you are too. So we see a relationship with these graces. Secondly, let's look at the scope of what Paul 
is commanding us to do. Notice what he says, and I just led into it with an example from Stonewall Jackson, but notice the scope of our thanksgiving is what? Everything. Everything. We ought to give thanks in all things, in everything. If you will, let's look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 and following. Notice how Paul speaks of God's care for him. Paul is addressing how God has put him in humble circumstances, yet has held on to him. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 4.10 and following. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before... But you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless... You have done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul doesn't at all shy away from saying, listen, I've had a hard ministry. I've had a hard life. It's been difficult to me. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and Paul begins to sort of relate some of those ministerial hardships that he's gone through. And yet, does Paul ever cease... Does Paul ever cease giving thanks to God? Never. In fact, just as a a note of fact for you, Paul, more than any other New Testament writer, speaks more about rejoicing and praying and giving thanks than any of the other apostles. He speaks constantly about it. Dozens of places you can go in the Scriptures where Paul says, and we give thanks to God for you and for this ministry. And it's a very difficult ministry. Let me give you, I think, another good biblical example. Turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Look at verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10 and then I want to go up into the context. Now when Daniel knew that the document or this decree was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying, giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Now what's the context of Daniel doing this. We'll look back up at verse 6. Now I want you to know, look at the the context. So when these commissioners and satraps came came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as fellows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast 
into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. What did Daniel do? Did Daniel go to Facebook? Did Daniel go right to Facebook and talk about this pagan government? Did Daniel go and, and spill out his hatred for this pagan government on Facebook or social media? Did he take a picture and Snapchat and send it of his angry face? No, he didn't do any of that. He goes into his room. He opens the window toward Jerusalem, which at that point in time, in God's plan of redemption, was the holy city, the place of God's dwelling. And he got on his knees and he thanked God. What did he thank God for? Well, the text doesn't explicitly go on to tell, but let me ask you this. Do you think it's far-fetched that he would not thank God for the opportunity to glorify him? Lord, another opportunity and challenge for your servant to glorify you. Hold on to me. I mean, Daniel, Daniel's not praying in his own strength. I don't believe that. I think it's what made Daniel so much of God's prophet here. Lord, hold on to me. And I will glorify your name. And I will be obedient. And I will pray. But I need you to hold on to me. I need you to be my strength. And I'll face the lions if need be. I will trust you. I will not trust men. I will put my trust in you. And he gives thanks to God for that opportunity. And brothers and sisters, there are many reasons to give thanks to God. I want to just mention some. In the book of Thessalonians, Paul thanks God for their desire to grow in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul thanks the Lord that the Thessalonians are eager to grow in grace. They're eager to learn and to, to take the gospel outside of themselves and to go and, and, and take it to others. He is thankful to God for their earnest eagerness to continue to walk with Christ in, in the gospel. In chapter 2, he says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because you received the word which you have heard from us. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is, the word of truth, the word of God, which is effectively works in you who believe. Paul says, I thank God that you're eager to receive the word. Thessalonians chapter 3. For what? Thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul in chapter 3 verse 9 and 10 says what? Oh, we thank God for you. You are so special and such a treasure to us because of your zeal for the gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray for you all the time. And we even want to come back to you and perfect what is lacking. 
I want you to think about some of these things. Think about your list of things that you're thankful for. How long is it? How long is the list that you're thankful for? Well, you know, you, you children, you pray and you thank God for your family, right? You thank God for your mom and your dad. You thank God for your brothers and sisters. You thank God for your church. You thank God for your elders. You thank God for any of your other church officers. You thank God for your friends at school. Does it go further than that? Do you thank God for others? I mean, Paul even thanked God for all kinds of men. What did we read over back in Timothy? He says, pray for all kinds of men. Even pagan kings. Why? Thank God when they want to live at peace with the church. Thank God that they are willing to live with us and not hinder the gospel of the kingdom of God. Thank God for His mercy. I'm not going to go through all the passages I have here. I can give you this list if you want. Certainly thank God for His goodness and mercy. Thank God for Christ. When's the last time you earnestly thank the Father for sending Jesus Christ to die on your behalf? Thank God for Christ's power and His rule and His reign. Where would this earth be without that? I want you to think about this. Thank God for the favor, his, the favor He has upon the church and how Christ sits and mediates in heaven for the good of the church. Why? Because the church has many enemies, brothers and sisters. The church has many powerful enemies. And what reason do we have to think we could stand up against any of them outside of Christ's power and authority? You thank God. You thank Christ for His power. That's what they do in the book of Revelations. That's what the elders do around the throne. They praise Jesus for His power, for His glory, for His honor, and for His name. They're praising Jesus in heaven because He now rules the earth in heaven. And what a ruler He is. What a ruler He is. Revelation chapter 11, verse 17. Have you prayed for the deliverance through Christ from indwelling sin? Romans chapter 7. When's the last time you thanked the Lord, you have given thanks to the Lord that in Christ, indwelling sin in you has been put to death. What sins do you struggle with? What are those sins that are... Um, well, those sins that are sort of characteristic of who you are, your personality, the propensities, the sinful propensities... Have you thanked God in Christ that they don't have power over you? That in Christ you can overcome them? You thank God for the victory over death. Now we usually do that when? Funerals. We usually do that at funerals. But brothers and sisters... 
the victory over death in the grave is an encouragement to us now, before death. It's an encouragement to us now that we would give thanks to God so that we would what? We would now live as those who have been made alive in Christ and are not part any longer of the kingdom of darkness and death. What about the triumph of the gospel? We talk a lot about the defeat of the gospel, but when's the last time we have expressed thanksgiving for the triumph of the gospel? I listened to an encouraging podcast recently. And this Christian philosopher, theologian, scholar, made a bold statement that I have not heard in a long time. He says, I do not see the kingdom of Christ being pushed back. And he was, an, he was European. He said, I see Muslims being converted to Jesus. I see conversions taking place. I see the gospel going and having victory. He says, I don't see the kingdom of Christ being shoved in a corner. I don't see the gospel of Jesus Christ not able to tear down these walls of false religion. He goes, I don't see it. And he gave examples. And this man, this man had a particular ministry to the Muslims. I was encouraged by that. Give God thanks We give God thanks for the conversion of others. You know, when you think about what other churches are doing, what other believers are doing, giving God thanks for churches that are able to go and feed the poor downtown. Give thanks that the body of Christ is diverse and multifaceted, multi-gifted. That we're all not called to do the exact same things. We're not all fingers or hands or elbows and forearms and, and uh, you know, thighs and legs and feet and necks. We're not all any of those things. We're all certain things that all in Christ are making an impact for the whole world. And to offer thanksgiving for what Christ is doing in other places and with other Christians are vital and important. We ought to give God thanks when we see love and compassion poured out upon others. Philippians 1 verses 3 and 5, Colossians 1, 3 and 6. We ought to give God thanks when we see zeal exhibited by others. I mean, what a, you know, this is one thing I pray for regularly. And I'll I want God to give us new Christians. New Christians. Because old Christians need stimulating. Amen? We need to remember what it's like to have your eyes opened. We need it. We need that enthusiasm. We need that encouragement. And it does our hearts good when we see others embracing the gospel, embracing Jesus Christ, and coming in their Bibles and goes, Did you know this was there? Did you know how Jesus defeated Satan on that? You read this? And it does your heart good.
We ought to thank God for those who serve the Lord. Chronicles, First Chronicles 29, 6 through 14 is another one of those appointments of, you know, appointed thanksgiving, appointed prayers, and appointed rejoicing. We ought to thank God when He meets and answers our own prayers. You know, how often, and, and when I say this, I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to us. I remember thinking, wow, the Lord has answered so many of my prayers and I can't remember one time giving Him heartfelt thanksgiving. I mean, I said, thank you. Lord, thank you. But he, I think He deserved more than that. I think He deserved a reflection upon the desire Upon what he did. I, none of us like being snubbed. Thanks. Mm-hmm. You know, we do something good. Somebody does something good for you. And you just snub it. You know, I mean, you might mention it, but... You know, and of course, the bigger the deed should be what? The greater the thanksgiving, right? That's normal, isn't it? Well, let's go to our third point. Our third point is why are we to be, or why are we to give thanks? Because God requires it. God requires it. And that's what Paul says in the text. He says, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And what does Paul mean by that? He means that this is something that you must do. It, go back a chapter, go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul uses the same phrase. Notice what he says here. For verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is you abstain from sexual immorality. And I'm going to stop there. Paul is using the same phrase. This is an important injunction. This is not something, oh, if you really want to have a real Christian church do these things. No, this is the duty and obligation, moral duty, of God's saved people. God's saved people. It is God's will. It is much as God, it is as much God's will for you to rejoice, pray, and to give thanks as it is to abstain from sexual immorality. That's how strong the injunction is. That's how strong it is, brothers and sisters. It is just as strong as Paul saying, do not participate in sexual immorality. What does Paul mean by this? What is his point here? Well, I think Paul is adding force to the injunctions themselves. Paul is giving weight to them. For this is God's will for you. Because it might simply be saying, well, I rejoice and I pray, you know, and I give thanks every now and then. Paul is enforcing the continual duty of these injunctions by saying it is God's will. Meaning, brothers and sisters, by adding that to it, what he's asking us to do is become proficient at it. 
Work at it. Do it. And do it. And do it. And do it. And continue to pray and to seek God's face and do it more and more and more, brothers and sisters. And now this, in this statement that it's in God's will, it's God's will for you isn't alone. Notice what it goes on to say. That for this is God's will for you in what? In Christ Jesus, the gospel. Let me add this. This is the fruit of a true gospel believer in Christ. This is the fruit of a real gospel believer in Jesus Christ that they rejoice. They do it privately and they definitely do it publicly. That they pray and that they give thanks privately and publicly that in Christ in this gospel environment this gospel scenario we would exhibit these graces beloved and we would do so in a way that we improve upon them and improve upon them and improve upon them and improve upon them and we will never we will never be perfect at it on this side of the second coming of Christ. We'll never, be perf- we'll never perfect our rejoicing. We'll never perfect our praying and calling upon His name. We'll never perfect our giving of thanks. We'll miss it. We'll be hardened at times and, and, and have to make ourselves do it. But we must do it. What are some of the strengths of a Christian who is carrying out the will of God in these graces and in this gospel context? Well, I think let's take Daniel for example. Let's use Daniel and Paul as examples of these three graces. Of rejoicing, of praying, and of giving thanks. Daniel was taken out of his homeland. He he was a prisoner of war. He he did not have a family after his young years. He was taken from his family. Tragic. Tragic. Yet God had a plan for him. And what do we see Daniel doing all of his life? We can go back and read the book of Daniel, but what do we see I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping you know enough and will go home and read it to your children if they don't know enough is to understand what does Daniel do all of his life? He rejoices in his God. In his communion with God. That God is his God. He prays and seeks God for supplication. Lord, aid me, help me in this time of my life. And he gave thanks to God for the opportunity for it. He never went back home. The Apostle Paul. Oh, let me ask you this. Do you think Daniel was a strong man? You think Daniel was strong? He had people conspiring against him. His, his peers, satraps and the wise men, hated him. They hated him. 
They counseled against him. They worked against him. He didn't have a lot of friends. We don't see that. But he had communion with God. What do we see in Daniel? We see a strong, convicted man that's not easily moved. And we see these three characteristics. If you go and read the book, you're going to find these three characteristics about Daniel. What about the Apostle Paul? From the time of Paul's conversion, the Lord Jesus says of him, this is a man that I've chosen to suffer many things for my namesake. He will suffer many things for my name. And what do we see Paul doing throughout his ministry? Rejoicing in God's salvation. Rejoicing that he communes with God. We see Him praying consistently and constantly. We see Him giving thanks to God for everything and for every circumstance of life. There's not one circumstance of life. There's not one scenario. There's not one person. I mean, Paul doesn't at all uh, uh, minimize any of the sins against him. He'll tell you, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm back there. My God met all my needs. My God was with me in prison. He was with me in the in the sea when I was shipwrecked. He was with me when I faced the you know when I fought the dragon in Ephesus, the serpent. He was with me, and Paul constantly give, gave thanks to God. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. Just those two things. Those two men. Are they easily shaken? Are they easily moved? Are they are there are they easily are their spirits easily dampened? No. They take great they have such depth in these graces, it has shaped their lives and character. That's what we want here. Beloved, that's the opportunity you and I have over these last several Sunday mornings is to develop a joy, a prayer life, and a desire to give public thanksgiving to God so that we can truly glorify our God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray.